Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to Table Tennis Talk. My name is Ryan Lewis, and today we have a very special bonus episode for you. Uh, it's just me recording this little intro, but uh, Joey and I had a chance to interview the great Danny C. Miller, Joey's coach, uh, who he's mentioned before, and at his height, ranked number 19 in the world. This guy is amazing. He's a legend. And we got the chance to chat with him for about an hour. We were planning on including this in our next episode, but there was just so much good stuff and we got him talking for quite some time. So we decided we would give y'all a chance to listen to this all on its own. So here's a bonus episode of Table Tennis Talk and we will see you in a week. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for sticking around. Today we have a very special guest, Danny C. Miller, the American table tennis legend. Danny, how's it going? It's going pretty good. It's great to be here in Salt Lake. We still have Joey with us. Hey, everybody. I'm here. <laughs> um, awesome. So, uh, Danny, I think probably most of the listeners of the podcast know who you are, but uh, if they don't, um, why don't you uh, give us your, your credentials, who you are? Well, I'm, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Grew up there with uh, five brothers and three sisters, and uh, I was five times U.S. singles champion and uh, 12 times U.S. doubles champion. Uh, my highest world ranking was number 19, wow. and I've uh, been playing table tennis all my life. <laughs> awesome. Playing and coaching. So Danny was my coach growing up um, since I was six until I moved to Utah, which was about six or seven years ago, so been coaching quite a bit at least with me and also playing awesome player in the last 23 years i've been coaching uh, juniors in south bend and that's been really rewarding so it's uh sort of retired from playing even though i played but i never trained for a long time but coaching kids was uh almost as rewarding as playing it really cool. was uh great experiences what are some of your like more rewarding coaching moments i mean you've had a lot of pretty high level players in your um coming out of your junior program in Indiana. Oh, that's for sure. Uh, you know, being the Olympic coach in 2000 in Sydney was just an awesome experience. You know, walking out in the opening ceremony was so thrilling. I'll never forget that. I was also the coach in 2004. But probably my greatest memory was in 2007 when uh, we were at the trials out in San Diego. And uh, Mark Kaczynski, my student, won the men's division. Mm. And uh, Joey won the junior division, and my other student, A.J. Brewer, won the cadet. So we had the number one man, the number one junior, and the number one cadet, all from a little town in uh, Indiana. So I remember awesome. that day, and I, when we got on the plane that night, I felt so awesome, and it was just a great, great feeling. But I also thought, geez, how are we ever going to be able to replicate that? <laughs> you know? So that, was, uh, that probably was the highlight of my coaching career for sure. And uh, there's been other great moments, but boy, nothing could possibly surpass that. And my son played there too and did really well. Just missed out on the team. So uh, South Bend was, uh, we were on the map then, that's for sure. That's awesome. 
That's awesome. I remember that trials really vividly. That was a, that was, yeah, that was a good one. I can remember sitting, we took the, the overnight flight and we're sitting out there with your dad and all that. And, and I didn't even sleep on the flight. I watched the movie. I was just sitting there just absolute bliss <laughs> thinking, I don't know if I did this or not, but uh, it was a combination of great, great students and good timing. And, uh, you know, the, you, you three guys were awesome. So it made me look good. I remember going to that trials. My flight was delayed and delayed and delayed because it was, I think it was in the wintertime and it was in San Diego and I got there like a couple hours before my first match. And I was thinking I might not even make it. And then I remember the day after the, that I made the team, I was this house, I was staying at some relative's house and their dog ate both of my paddles. I was in the shower and they got in my bag and they ate both of my paddles. <laughs> what? I remember that. I remember. I was like, how did that happen? I mean, how could they get into your racket case? And, like, you know, all the stars aligned. It's perfect. What What in the racket attracted them enough that they would want to chew that I have out? no idea. Maybe the wood or glue. the glue. Probably smell. the glue. Probably the glue back then. That was the, the hot thing back in those days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Oh, that's cool. Uh, well, Danny, how did you, um, when you kind of decided to go into coaching, what was kind of your thought process around that? Well, you know, I was 42 years old and I, I always coached, always did camps, but I was mm-hmm. still a player then. So I realized at that point that I'm probably not going to be winning much more. Mm. So little money in the prize money of table tennis. So I knew I had to get into coaching. And uh, there was a Victor Tolkachev who came to Pittsburgh and uh, he was coaching at my club. And then South Bend, Indiana, they needed a coach. So I said, you should take this Victor. He, he's a great coach, and you probably get him for not that expensive. So he went to South Bend for a year and a half. Mm. And then uh, he had to go back to Latvia. Okay. So then the program, which was really doing well, they had 20 kids, and it was really a nice club. They couldn't, we couldn't find a coach. I was the president of the association at the time, and they said, Danny, can you find a coach? We couldn't find a coach because it just didn't have enough money, and there wasn't too many coaches. And then finally, after about six to seven months, they said, well, what about you? And I said, nah, uh, you know, I'm a Pittsburgh boy. I got my family here. And then, you know, after I hung up the phone, I started thinking, you know, well, what am I really going to do for the next 10, 15 years? I mean, I don't really, I never went to college or anything. So I said, boy, wouldn't it be nice to coach and be able to go home at night? Mm. Never had to do that because I always was traveling and doing clinics. And I had two kids at the time, young. So I talked with my wife, and she said, I thought, man, this, this could work. And so they made me a good offer, and I went over there, and uh, 23 years later, I'm still doing it. And we were really lucky to get you in, in Indiana, for sure. And it's really <laughs> rewarding, too, when you make a difference. You know, you know, Mark Kaczynski made the Olympic team in 2000, and uh, there were only three players on the team, and I was the coach. And I started coaching Mark when he was 10. So mm-hmm. he was on the Olympic team when he was 18. It doesn't get any better than that. And here mm-hmm. I am, the men's coach. My students on the team, there's only three in the whole you know, United States of America. So we went to the Olympics together, and a uh, memory that uh, will never be forgotten, that's for sure. That's cool. Um, so, Joey, were you already on the South Bend um, in the program when Danny came in? So I was, I think I was five, okay. and Danny made me wait until I was six to start <laughs> taking lessons. So I was, I wanted to come, but I was, yeah, I was, I had to wait a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, I think he came in about a year later, and then he had two brothers, too, so that was really nice for the program. So those three were always there, Andy and Gordy and Joe. And then, uh, of course, we had Mark Kaczynski and Nate Troyer, Randy Hewitt. Uh, We had 20 20 players at that point. They really started up a great club. We had a super promoter in Brad Balmer, 
And that's one of the main reasons I went to South Bend because I'm not a promoter, I'm not a marketer, I'm a player, I'm a coach. Mm. And I said, boy, this guy's the greatest marketer of all time. I'm going to go there and, you know, if we team up and then unfortunately, nine months into the, my, my tenure, he, he moved to Arizona. <laughs> and it's like, whoa, no, no, no. And, I, and then I was stuck without a real marketer. He was the kind of guy that would keep calling you up until you gave in. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. That's nice to have. What are your, uh, what are your earliest memories of Joey? <laughs> when did you know that Joey was going to be something? <laughs> well, my earliest memory of Joey was when he was six. We played in like under 3,200 doubles at the club, and he was like probably about no bigger than four foot for sure at that point. <laughs> he couldn't even see over the table. So that was my earliest memory. But, uh, well, you know, with the three brothers, you, know, you could tell that they all had talent. So mm. uh, working together, Gordy was a chopper, Andy was a looper, and Joey was the guy who came up behind and uh, you knew they were going to be good because we had such a high level. So mm. uh, if they worked hard and they came three, four times a week, they were going to get there. Joey stood out because uh, definitely power. He had a lot of power. Uh, uh, probably the most intense player that's ever picked up a racket. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we had, we had to make sure that he didn't get too intense. But that intensity like that <laughs> is good for focus. And really, I was the same. Yeah. You know, if he was number one intense player, I was probably number two. <laughs> so, you know, when we get out on the court, sometimes uh, nothing else matters. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've seen him play. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of your more intense matches and more – I mean, you've – you played a lot of matches, a lot of big, big matches against some top-level players, and what are some of your... That's for sure. Uh, you know, I've played many, many tournaments. You know, I've been playing tournaments since I was like 12. Uh, probably the most memorable for sure was in 1983 Tokyo Worlds. I'm playing Kai Zenhua in the men's singles. He's number two in the world. He's from China, and uh, it was a heck of a match, and I, I, I had great strategies. I was playing best. I was 29 years old. I was at the top of my game. So it was one game each, and uh, I'm up 19-16, and he's serving. And you weren't allowed to stamp on the serve because they had problems with the color rule. And he stamped on all five serves, and I lost the game, and mm -hmm. I just lost my cool. And I went after the umpire, and I said, you, you cannot allow him to do that. And so uh, the match went on, and the fourth game, it was 18-17. I'm down 2-1, and I'm back against the barrier, and he hooks a loop. Mm -hmm. And the only way I'm going to get to the ball was a full-out dive. So I actually dive, a full-out dive. A actually Superman to, dive. Superman dive, really. <laughs> and I actually had to extend the racket in my hand because I couldn't reach the ball. And I flicked it, and it landed right in the corner for a winner. Oh, wow. So now it's 18-all, and then I come, I get up, and, and I make the next three shots, and t three in a row, 21-18, and I am just fired up. I mean, I got the number two guy in the world on the ropes, and I run all the way around the court. And he was very disrespectful for me in the beginning. He beat me the first game easy, did a couple twirlies. I told him if he ever did that again, he'd be in big trouble with me. Uh, so the fifth game, I'm down 8-6. I score four in a row. I'm up 10-8. And uh, the whole crowd has now moved over to my table because it looks like the Chinese guy's going out. Mm. And uh, the umpire now faults his serve. And I'm thinking, oh, no, 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 I know this is going to be a problem. I'm moving, I'm rolling, I'm going, and he's nervous. He can't even hold his racket. I could see it shaking. And so the main Chinese coach calls the main guy, the main referee, 22-minute delay, 22-minute mm. delay. So now everyone's watching. Walner's there, Pat Applegren, they're all watching. All the top players are watching. All the other matches are done. And uh, so I'm thinking – just stay cool. Just stay cool. This is no big deal. You'll be all right. 
And, you know, I got played, and I didn't know I got played. And what happened was uh, I should have been thinking, what am I going to do on the next point? What am I going to do on my next series of serves? You know, keep your mind on what we've been doing. And I was just trying to be cool because, you know, there was a lot of chaos and people, you know. So then I come back out, and the referee takes away the fault. Mm-hmm. So said so 11-8, they pull the card over to 10. I'm like, oh, man, that's not, you know. So that kind of rattled me. And then I lost my focus right there. I lost six in a row. And the match went out. Literally in a matter of one minute, the match went away from me. I mean, I had it. I was moving on. I might have even been world champion. I mean, the next round was against a Korean who I'd never lost to. And and I had the guy on the ropes, and this situation came up. So that was really a devastating loss. I mean, that was tough. I was proud of my effort. And then, uh, you know, another one was, you know, uh, another tough one was, a couple, really great one was in 1982 finals. I'm playing Eric Bogan. And uh, it's two games each, 15 all in the final game. This is worth $10,000 to me at least, minimum. And uh, he scores four out of five on my serve. And he does a little victory dance. And he does another little victory dance. And while he's doing that, I'm thinking, he's a little too excited. I'll bet his first serve's coming out, and I'm going to loop it. And that's exactly what happens. So he serves out, and I rip it right by him, 1917. So then I think, no matter what, you stay on the attack. Don't let him hit a shot at this point. So I hit three loops. I get the point, 1918. I think, boy, now we're right where we need to be almost. Next point, unbelievable. He serves off. <laughs> I think, oh, my gosh. As I'm going back to get the ball, the only thing I could think of was, thank God, I didn't even have to hit a shot. And I'm back at 19 all. <laughs> and for sure, he's definitely in major trouble nervous-wise. Whatever you do, don't make an error, no matter what. And uh, I played two smart points. Actually, at 19 all, what I thought was, okay, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I thought, I always go to his forehand when it's crucial because it's weak. I thought, no, this time we're going to go right to his backhand. He'll never expect it. And he looked for his forehand, saw it to the backhand, got there late, and hit long. And then, of course, the last point for sure, I'm going to the forehand. He flubbed it right in the net. (laughs) And uh, I threw my racket in the air, hugged my brothers, and... uh, I won $10,000 in the U.S. championship. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> and, you know, I, I didn't feel bad for him at all. You know, you know that's the way sports is. You know, there's the, the elation and the, and the devastation. No, it's, and, you were down 19-16, got five in a row? On his serve. <laughs> on his serve. On his serve. Awesome. And, you know, in some ways, you know, I've read Arnold Palmer books, many books, and, and I kind of lost my edge that day because I felt like it could never get better than that. I was mm-hmm. like, holy heck. You're down 16-19 for the national championships. You've won four out of the last six, and this will make five out of seven. And uh, you, you held tough five serves in a row against the guy, and, you know, how could it get better? And then I kind of lost my edge a little bit, even though I didn't realize I lost my edge. And when top players lose their edge, they don't even realize it until like two years later uh-huh. because you're always trying to get better. You're always trying to prove yourself. You want to, you know, I want to be world champion. And I remember when I read Owen Palmer's book, I said, you know, I think I lost my edge that day. And I still did a lot of great things after that, but not that many. Hmm. And that was sort of a little bit the highlight. After that, I kind of started going downward. And my brother retired, so I lost my practice partner. And then I started coaching. Hmm. So some of my uh, memorable plays, there weren't many after that. So, uh, yeah, you mentioned your brother. So... You have two brothers, is that right? I have five brothers. Five brothers. Yeah, you mentioned that. Um, and so they played kind of when you were playing as well. He, your brother was your doubles partner, right? Yes, yeah. Ricky, uh, we won eight doubles, U.S. doubles championships in a row. 
And in the, from 1974 or so till 1981, I was number one in the U.S. and he was number two. That's awesome. And he never was able to break through. And, you know, and he lost in the semifinals of the Nationals like six times mm. on the other side of me. And, and I was always in the final waiting. I just couldn't wait if he got there. And, you know, and I was just wondering. I always wondered if, you know, he would beat me in the final. I actually would be happy. Yeah. I really would have been yeah. because, I, you know, I had won three or four times. It would have been better for him to win one. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, but he just didn't get there. And uh, he always lost to Eric and he lost to DJ Lee and uh, he just got a little bit short. So mm. that was a little bit disappointing, but boy, I sure would have been great to play him in the final once. Yeah. Cool. Um, so you have um, a unique uh, way that you hold the paddle when you play um, called the C. Miller grip. And uh, so I'm interested um, whenever you kind of started doing that, how did that, how did that develop into something unique? Well, I was a baseball player and I kind of grabbed it like, a, you know, how baseball people, you, know, you grab it with a backhand, you block everything and you have basically no forehand. Mm. That's the way most players play because they can really control the ball. And I played for about four years from when I was like 12 to like 16. And then I got uh, picked for the U.S. junior team to Canada. So we went up to Canada, me and my dad, and there were four players on the junior team and only three got to play. Mm. And the coach thought my style was absurd and that it would never be any good. So he sat me on the bench, even though I was ranked higher than the other guys, and we lost. We lost to Canada. But later on in the tournament, I won the under-18 boys, and later on that coach said that was the biggest mistake he ever made. Yeah. But really he didn't because it motivated me tremendously. <laughs> my, awesome. dad was, my dad was really pissed. But, <laughs> and I understood that. You know, he was like, we came all the way up here, and then we're going to sit on the bench? I mean, this is, you know, why is my son on the bench when he's ranked number two? Yeah. You know, and they were like, well, he has to change his grip if he's ever going to be any good. And it was like, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> cool. And my grip, you know, to explain it is, you know, I play only one side of the racket. It's a great blocking grip. It was very good in the 70s because backhand loops were not really in vogue. Mm. Uh, it's a little harder now. Uh, and on the other side, I have an anti-spin. So anti-spin is basically... Uh, very vulnerable and it's not really that valuable if you're playing shake hand mm. but if you can use it when you want to and you can hide it and you can kind of like not use it all the time it can be pretty valuable returning serves blocking loops uh, changing depth of the ball so that that was uh that was one of the great uh opening things to me i was a good player but i used to have you know inverted rubber on both sides joe and then all of a sudden this anti-spin came out, and I read, 1971, this chopper from France beat Stellan Bankson, and he had anti-spin on his backhand. I'm like, what the heck is anti-spin? I was like, well, I only play one side of the racket. Maybe I ought to try it. And when we first tried it, we thought it was garbage. It's like, well, this stuff doesn't work. <laughs> and then I went to Minnesota, and, and I played in this big tournament at Macy's. And uh, I started playing, and I did so well. People, the color was red-red. So they didn't know what was coming, and players would loop them way off the table and in the net. And I'm thinking, I called my brother. I said, you won't believe what's happening. I mean, I'm in the semifinals of the men's singles, and uh, people don't know what I'm doing, and I can return every serve. Mm. We couldn't return serves back then because we didn't have much experience. Mm. So that was sort of the beginning of my style, and, and I, I always loved to be unique. You know, I think being unique is uh, good as long as you stay within the technical aspects of the sport. It's pretty cool. It's awesome. What was it like when you were training? Because I've heard a couple stories just growing up, from, like you with your brothers training and getting ready for to beat the Chinese kind of thing. And like, what were your goals and how did you train for 
for stuff? Well, yeah, we had a chicken coop in our backyard, and we used to play down in the basement, and it was so small that we were always losing the balls. The furnace was a huge furnace. We could never find it, and there was poles in the way. And then my dad uh, decided that they were going to renovate the chicken coop, so they, they <laughs> renovated the chicken coop, mostly so they could have parties for his moose people, but it may, we're really doing it for the table tennis. So we'd go up there, and you know our goal was we're going to – it's kind of amazing when you think – we were training in our backyard in Pittsburgh, and, and we were training to beat the Chinese. And, you know, that, that's <laughs> in kinda, a chicken coop. <laughs> in a chicken coop <laughs> with you know, unique styles. That, that's like someone practicing in their backyard thinking they're going to win the Masters yeah. you know, at golf. You know, they're playing golf, and they're chipping and thinking, we're going to win the Masters. But you know, we actually did it. You yeah. know? So, uh, and we certainly couldn't have done it without the unique style. I mean, that was so good internationally. You know, when someone would play me internationally, I always had great results because... You know, when you play me the first time, you, you know, your head's spinning. You're not sure what's going on because a lot of techniques you use aren't going to work against my style. So if you're not thinking, and back then, there wasn't a lot of coaching. There wasn't a lot of, mm. you know, you know, internet, a lot of things that, you know, people would say, you know, can, if you play the similar style, these are his weaknesses. Yeah. You know, so first time internationally, you know, I was beating the Koreans. I was beating the Japanese. I took out some Chinese Europeans gave me a lot more trouble because they they could stop me on the first they couldn't I couldn't get my big loop in, so mm. I had trouble with uh, you know Walder and some of those guys, but uh, my wins against the Asians kept me up there and got me up to nineteenth uh, in the world, but you know financially it was too hard to keep going mm. you know you know go to the French Open or go to Japan Open or whatever and you don't make any money and you spend two weeks and you're you know twenty three twenty four years old. And you're U.S. champion, and you're basically broke. Yeah. You're thinking, well, you better start coaching. But I didn't want to do too much side things because I was shooting to be world champion. Yeah. So every time I would do coaching, I try to minimize it because I, you know, as you're going up the ladder, you can't stop. If you mm. stop, then you're, that's it. Then you probably never get going. It'll only go backwards. So then, you know, butterfly was going to help me a lot and help me a lot, and that, that didn't pan out as well as it should have. And uh, so then, when I was about 26. I said, well. World champion thing, we got to back off that. Let's start making some money and then see what we can do within the sport. I still tried hard and still played hard and still did some things, but that 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 one focus of being a total professional player kind of got watered down. Mm. So what's next? What's next on the horizon? You know, You're I here training with me. So. You know, I always think that you know, I, I just did this World Veterans a couple of years ago. We had four thousand players in Vegas, and I was the organizer. And I thought, man, this is the greatest thing ever, and there's probably never going to be anything better than that. And then uh, now this, you know, I was out golfing with one of my club mates in in August, and he says, "You should try out for the Olympics." You know, you you're 65 years old now, and this will be your last chance, and you're going to really regret it because I hadn't tried out for many years. I hadn't trained for. 25 years I've been coaching and and I've taken a lot of losses too because I go to these tournaments with my students but I haven't been playing you know I'd go with Joey mm -hmm. and Mark and I'd run around coaching them and I'd hit with them and I still play pretty good but training was totally out of there so so he says uh I said nah I can't do that it's be way too expensive you know I and I don't have you know 12 fifteen thousand dollars to do what I need to do he says well coach what if the club does a GoFundMe page for you Ah, I wasn't sure about that, but I said, well, if you take the financial thing out of there, I'm in. I thought, man, this will be cool. And then, I, and then you know, they did the GoFundMe page. We got a few bucks, and I thought, this is going to be cool. I'm going to actually train. And then I actually thought, this is a story. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I got a resume. I got a unique style. I haven't trained for 30 years. 
They don't know how good I could possibly get, even though I'm fighting the age situation for sure. Uh, I thought maybe it's going to get picked up, so uh, I got a great story in the newspaper, hmm. which then got picked up by CBS News, which uh, went out to 5 million people. That's awesome. Which uh, now has turned into that Netflix is going to follow me at the trials. Really? So, you know, this, <laughs> it's like a mushroom. You know, me and my wife, every day something new happens. And it's, it's just an amazing thing. It's almost like my whole career got bottled up into this last few months and just exploded. Yeah. And, uh, man, I couldn't be more thankful. Yeah. It's a great time for it. I mean, I think when you were at your height, there was no internet. There was no kind of way for people to, to know what's going on. Um, and so this is a great time for it. And, you know, for me, one of the most exciting things, this CBS, they did such a great job. The executive producers won Emmys and things like that. And I said, they're going to do it. They spent, they spent like four days with me. Wow. And uh, what the coolest thing is, you know, I've taught hundreds and hundreds, thousands of students, and my family is huge with nieces and nephews, and they all know I'm a ping pong champion, but they never knew at what level and what yeah. I've been through. And CBS brought that out completely. Cool. And it's like, if you want to see it, just go to Dan Seymour, CBS Morning News, and it'll come up on YouTube. And uh, now I get, I'm getting... I'm getting uh, emails and phone calls. I got a club in England. The whole club is supporting me. Wow. I got people in Germany and China and Japan that are sending this. And this is the coolest thing ever. I go to the library and I put my books in. And the lady says, I just want you to know that what you're doing is the coolest thing I've ever heard of. And I'm like, <laughs> I feel the pressure of it. Uh. But, uh, you know, you know, if you do your best and you fight hard and you train and you're prepared, you know, I'm willing to accept whatever result happens. Yeah. Hopefully it's a good one. But if it's not this this journey, you know, the journey is always better than the ending, mm. you know. And I'm reading John Wooden's book, and he says, you know, what I really miss are the practices. Mm. He says the championships aren't really that exciting. He says, because then they're over. He says, as you're going to the journey, that was the greatest thing. And, and I've enjoyed these last six months. The first three months I worked on my body, okay. hardly played at all. Hmm. So my game was shaky. And everybody's like, well, you know, how much progress have you made? I knew if I played for six months, I'd burn out, mm. totally burn out. And I didn't want to get to the trials feeling like this was a job. So uh, right now, it's kind of still rising. we got three more weeks. Uh, when I get there, it's going to be really exciting, and uh, hopefully I do well, and Joey does well. And, uh, you know, it's, it's probably the most exciting time of my life, which, how does that happen at 65? <laughs> <laughs> what's, the, uh, what's the training look like for you? Uh, now, you worked on your body in the beginning. Now, do you have um, somebody who's hitting with you, or how does that work? Well, I've been all over. I started, I went to Pittsburgh for twice, okay. trained with my buddies over there in my brother's house. They got a table in his house, and then, so I trained over there, and I went to Samson Dabini's club, mm. and mm. I trained over there twice. And then last week, I was in El Paso for a week, training with my son at the elevation. It was good, real fast. And then this week with Joey for a week, and then I'll be going back to Samson Dabini's next week. Cool. And then after that, I'm not sure. I may go to Texas and train with Mark Kaczynski for a week and his wife. Uh, so that will probably be the final step. And then it'll be on to L.A. Cool. So so last year I read your book, uh, Revelations of a Ping Pong Champion, um, and it was awesome. <laughs> so Thank you. Thanks for uh, writing that. Um, I'm interested about the uh, – maybe this is off topic a little bit, but I'm kind of interested in the process. Like what led you to deciding to put it down into a book and – you know, how was it uh, writing a book? I, I'm assuming it's your first book you've ever written. 
Well, I, I, I've written uh, how two books. I have oh, okay. Winning Table Tennis, and uh, so that was my first book. Well, I just, uh, I, you know, I thought I wanted to write a book about my life. I thought yeah. it'd be really kind of interesting because yeah. I've had so many stories and so many, you know, you play 600 tournaments, you know, 20 of those tournaments are going to have some really good stories. Yeah. So in my book, I've got, I think, some really good stories at the end. And uh, it was a great process, you know, starting from the beginning and going through the highlights and making those memories and, and remembering this match and that match. And people always say, how do you remember all those things? Well, I don't know. I have sort of a photographic memory of matches you know you have to remember what you served you used at deuce or bad shot you hit to cost you a match and and those they stay like in your brain forever mm. so when they hurt and when they hurt <laughs> and actually i never remember when they they work i just only remember when they don't so that's kind of i guess how you learn and i guess when they work you know that that's a great feeling but sometimes you don't learn much when you win it's when mm. you lose so uh it was really exciting to do the book i actually wrote it by my hand from beginning to end without even editing it. Like I just started from the beginning. Yeah, just write it right on paper. And I said, <laughs> wow. we'll just start from the beginning. How did it feel when, you know, I was 15? And let's go from there. And I just wrote the whole thing. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I even changed anything hardly, except for just, you know, oh. making sure that the, you know, the English was correct. <laughs> and um, I actually never changed anything. And my editor, Ed, Larry Hodges, says, you need to change anything? I said, no, you just clean it up and. Let's go with it. I, for some reason, my brain is like that. I can, I can start a paper, and write the whole thing, without even stopping. Or yeah. you know, as long as I have some notes to go. But even then, I didn't even use notes. I just mm. knew every memory that I wanted to put <laughs> in the book, and I probably missed a couple because I didn't maybe you know go in much detail. But you know, uh, it hasn't sold real well because it's kind of hard to read a book about someone's life. I think mm. you know people don't aren't that interested. But if they do read it, I think they'll. They all enjoy it because there's, there's some good stories in there. Some good stories. I remember going we used to go to tournaments all the time growing up, and you'd always have stories going, like driving to these tournaments, and you'd always tell stories. And I, it, was, it was one of my favorite parts of the trip. <laughs> Just I've got all kinds of stories, man. I mean, i got too many stories, you know, but uh, and some of them I really can't say. So, <laughs> you know, we've been all over the world, and, you know, we were definitely mischievous. That's no question about that. <laughs> Uh, you know, you, you know, three of us in Yugoslavia and getting arrested and things like that and having trouble in North Korea and, uh, you know, getting uh, having the police in London come after us. And uh, we never did anything really bad. It's just that uh, we were in bad places that we shouldn't have been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were in Yugoslavia, you know, and, and it, it was the final day and, and we were bored and, and the Chinese were all in the finals and we wanted to watch it but it didn't start till two o'clock. So we decided to climb this mountain. And growing up the mountain, and it was so awesome. And there was like three levels. And at the third level, there was a big sign in, in Yugoslavia that obviously said, you know, don't go any further. So we really didn't go any further. But there was a guard up there, and he, he yelled at us about something. And we were like, you know, we didn't think we did anything wrong. And then uh, so we started walking down, and he, he yelled at us again. And we're like, we don't know what he's talking about. So then he released the dog. He released the dog, and the dog came, and I stopped immediately, and Ricky and Mike kept running, and I told those guys, you better stop, and they, the dog pinned him against a tree, and, and they didn't bite him, but he had him against a tree, and the guy came down with a machine gun, and he, and, and he held us up, you know, he had all three of us, and I, I, I pushed the machine gun aside, I said, what the hell are you doing? Get that gun away from me, you know, and then he held us up on that mountain for about 30 minutes, they came up in a paddy wagon, and they came down and put us in jail. 
because Mike had a camera, and I guess they thought we were taking pictures. Mm. So we were in jail for like 14 hours, and they, they interrogated each one of us under a light, just like the movies. <laughs> you know, like, uh, uh, who's this one fellow with you? And you'd have to say, Mike, and where's he from? And, you know, who, who's the other guy? You know, you, all the stories would have to mesh. And uh, we got out at 2 a.m., and uh, the, the Yugoslavian guy who didn't act like he didn't speak English, I said, well, how do we get back to our hotel? You know, can't you, can you give us a ride? And he says, we're not a taxi service. It's 2 a.m., you know, and, and I, we were worried. You know, luckily we didn't have a manager or anyone who would have known we were gone. No one even knew we were gone because it was oh, just no. three of us. And I was 18, my brother Ricky was 17, and Mike was 15. Oh, man. <laughs> or 16, you know, so we were just young kids. And those two guys were freaked out. They put us in separate cells. And it was completely closed for a little window. And we were in there for, you know, 14 hours yeah. and I kept thinking this is cool you know <laughs> really because we didn't do anything so I mean this was a, I thought it was a great experience in a lot of ways because I, I, I mean what are they going to do to us we, we didn't do anything you know so eventually we did get out and it really was a cool experience you know I mean it's <laughs> certainly one of my greatest memories you know and Rick and Michael and I will never forget it <laughs> and it was really tough there in Yugoslavia you know they it was it was communist then and they had guards yeah. and they were always carrying machine guns. When we went to our hotel, they had guards right in the front front with machine guns, and on our wow. they were. And we're thinking, really? I mean, is it that kind of situation? We were so young, it didn't couldn't you know grasp the scope of it. Mm. But you know, those were some of the trips, and we've had some of those things happen to us along the way. But you know, six hundred tournaments. People think, man, you must have been wild. I wasn't wild, but you know, you know, along six hundred trips, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna have some things that are gonna happen that that are not norm. <laughs> yeah, uh, with that trip, so it was just you three guys. You were pretty much all kids. How did you even get to Yugoslavia? Uh, well, USA Table Tennis gave us some money, okay. and uh, they couldn't afford a coach. And you know, I was eighteen, so that we could go, and we we needed to get to these big tournaments. Yeah. So what we did is it was a three way thing. We went to Yugoslavia for the Yugoslav Open. And then we went to Scandinavian for the Scandinavian Open. And then we went to England for the Manchester Open. So three nice tournaments in three weeks. Mm. And so we got a lot out of it. And uh, and it was a really great trip. I got to play some of the top players in the world. I won the Manchester tournament, which I beat Dennis mm. Neal in the final. Great English player. And that was one of my, you know, really memorable wins. So and I did real well in the Yugoslav Open. I got to the round of 16. I beat the Yugoslavian champion right wow. in front of his home crowd. So I that was uh, we I got a lot of experience and that's when I started thinking you know on the on the world stage, you know I I can take these guys. So, what, one of the things that that kind of struck me in the book was when you talked about how you were um, malls were starting to open and you were going around and doing um, exhibitions and tournaments and malls, um, and so it kind of struck me because like the world is so different now and I'm curious like in terms of table tennis. Um, how like what are kind of things that you've noticed that have changed in the world of table tennis from when you were kind of um i guess at the top to today well in table tennis they're different but going back to the malls you know ricky and i we'd go all around the country doing malls and it was you know they wanted entertainment in those days mm. so they would pay you you know five hundred dollars thousand dollars a day and up on the marquee would be you know play u.s champion danny seymour win a game to 11 and win a thousand dollars so, you know, every ping pong guy in the world would come in and, you know, yeah. I, Ricky would say, you got to play them all, you know, and if we <laughs> lost, we had to pay half of it. 
<laughs> so uh, so we couldn't you know lose to anyone or do anything like that. But that was nerve wracking. Yeah, nerve wracking. But in the sport, you know, it's gotten so much faster, mm. more athletic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the new ball, it doesn't spin as, as well, maybe 20% less spin, and it's bigger, so uh, you got long more rallies. So you have to be more of an athlete now, and uh, it, it's physically demanding, mm. and it's fast. And, you know, it's like any sport. It's If you look at it now and you look at back when I was playing, you would say, eh, those guys don't look that good, you know. But uh, it's just a whole different level, you yeah. know. And, and the sport is growing. It's definitely growing, and... Uh, Probably too fast and too spinny, but I guess, you know, that's just the way things go. You know, there's not much we can do. Uh, but the good thing is that it's it's definitely, you know, table tennis used to be the nerdy sport, ping pong, you know. <laughs> the kid with the books and the, the glasses that have tape on the side, you know. Yeah. They, they would always have, like, cartoons and these guys. But now it's like the in sport, you know. Mm. It's it's like, you know, all the athletes play it, the, the actors and actresses love it. You know, everyone that has a big house has a table, and and, and ping pong is completely flip-flopped, and I don't know how that happened, mm. but it's certainly welcome. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. How old were you when you started playing? Uh, I guess I was about 11. Uh, I, I played at the rec center a little bit. We used to play at the rec center all the time, and then when I was 11, we got a table for Christmas. So, you know, on rainy days, that's where the whole neighborhood would be. And so we would play there, and you'd call winter, and sometimes there'd be four or five, you know, waiting to play. So that, Those are all was, the nerds of the neighborhood? Yeah. Uh, actually, the <laughs> athletes in the neighborhood. You know, we were all baseball players. You know, when the oh, Seamillers yeah. were around with the six brothers, you know, that's when the baseball game started, you know. <laughs> so nothing started until the Seamillers were around. So uh, whether it was basketball, baseball, or whatever. And uh, so that's how I started. And, you know, I carried my paddle around in school. I was the ping pong guy. Literally, it sat on top of my books because... You know, when I had a break at lunch, I'd go down to the gym and play whoever, and my one of my teachers would come down, and then after school, I'd go to the rec center. And the real reason I got into table tennis, there's one real reason. is when I was a baseball player, and I had a tryout with the Pirates, and uh, when I got to high school, I couldn't wait to try it for football. I was a quarterback for the Mount Oliver Indians, and I was a right linebacker. I was the kicker, the punter. I mean, I just loved football. And when I got in ninth grade, I had a tryout with the Pirates that day when they gave out equipment for the high school. So I came the next day, and the coach says, man, you're, you're kind of small. You're going to get hurt. I'm like, I'm not going to get hurt. I'm one tough dude. Ask these guys. I play football with these guys. So he wouldn't give me any equipment. And I had to be like a water boy for like three weeks. And I was like, you know, I never really quit anything. But, you know, I, I couldn't take that. You know, I was like, you know, it didn't, it didn't sit right with me. And then uh, I started to get into the table tennis a little bit there. And then I tried out for basketball a few months later. And I loved basketball, too. I was quick. I could shoot. And the coach cut me first cut. He said I was too small. I said, man, that's not fair at all. There was no three-point shot then, you know. And then I was, I was really ticked, you know. I went home, told my dad. I think I was crying. And uh, he'd be cut on the first cut, you know. I was way better than that. But he just cut me because I was small, you know. Then, then I said, okay. And I started going to the rec center. And I said, Started getting pretty good at ping pong. I thought, maybe this, you know, maybe I'll maybe I'll start playing this, and I don't have to worry about no coaches or people telling me I'm too small or telling me my grip isn't right. <laughs> so that's when I, you know, they at the rec center I was always there. You know, I, anybody came by, they would come by and play me, and I'd play all my buddies, and and that's where it started. And then the table at home and my brothers, and then we went to a club and we realized we weren't any good. And then uh, that's when I said, uh, we got to learn some things here. 
I always like to hear your story. I know you don't really like to tell it very much, but I always like to hear your story about North Korea. <laughs> it's like my favorite story. <laughs> I don't know. You don't have to share it if you don't want to. But. I'm not sure I can go all the way on that one because I'm lucky to be alive, actually. So that's a tough one, but I'll give you a little basis of it. You know, when we went to North Korea, uh, you know, we had been working seven years to get into the first division. Mm. We were in the second division in 73. We lost in the final. 75, we were in second division. We lost in the final. It's every two years. Every two years. And then in 77, we finally, we were down 4-2 to Italy, and we beat them 5-4. Most dramatic match of all. Now we're I've in, actually seen those matches. We're an, elite, we're an elite team, you know. And my brother Ricky won the ninth match, and we were working, you know. This was our dream. Now we're in the top 16 in the world, and we're going to take on the big boys, and we're ready for them. We're going to get them. We're even going to beat China, you know. This is our goal. But unfortunately, the worlds were in North Korea. Mm. But, you know, that didn't matter to us. You know, we were, you know, we're going no matter what. The State Department said, you you know, when you go there, you have no protection. Uh, so so when we got there, things went awry right away, you know. Uh, they took away my music. They took away my books. They took away my magazines. They had a guard on us the whole time. They treated us, you know, terribly would be a nice word. Mm. Uh so, you know, we didn't eat well. Uh, we were always on, they always watched us. We couldn't go anywhere, uh, you know, we, and we weren't playing real well initially. And uh, so then we play North Korea and there's 22,000 people and they're cheering against us, 22,000 people. Mm. And everyone is screaming like this is a cultural war. This isn't ping pong anymore. This is, you know, their culture against our culture. So I'm playing, uh, I was like 24th in the world and I'm playing this guy, he was number 26. Mm. And it's, uh, it's 18 all in the third game, and I hit a big loop, and he blocks long. And I go to pick up the ball, and I hear this huge cheer, and I'm thinking, what the hell was that for? And I turn around, and they gave him the point. And I said, no, no, that ball was long, you know, and it was a North Korean umpire. And they, they had been cheating. <laughs> That's not fair. They had been cheating other players, and other players were sort of taking it, you know. Mm. Well, I'm not going to take it, you know. And that ball was long. It's 1918, and, and, and this is an important rating, ranking match for me. And uh, so I refused to play. There's no way I'm going to play until I get that point. Well, the crowd got louder and louder and louder. Mm. And on the third tier, there was someone who had an American flag, and he, he put it on. He, he put it on flame and he burned it. You know? <laughs> so now, in the crowd. <laughs> now it's literally serious chaos. Yeah. And uh, our coach and our president says, "You got to play. <clears throat> We're not getting out of here alive." And I said, "I'm not playing." Until I get the point. <laughs> and then, then I realized that the other 15 tables, there were 16 tables in the arena. This was a huge arena. They all had to stop because it was way too loud. Mm. And I realized that this, at this situation now, <clears throat> excuse me, was unfair to the other players. Yeah. So I, I had to play. <clears throat> so I lost the next two points. I went to get the ball. I was really pissed off. And the North Korean came over and he jumped in my face. And I literally wanted to cold cock him. I didn't do it, but I mean, it was just so bad. And, and so that really started things going really bad. And then, you know, the kids, they're there. They treated us bad. They made us sit in, you know, all the players could sit in one area, but not us. We had to sit up in this way far corner with security. You know, they never wanted us to be out with the people mm. or, you know, one time we went out, we snuck out at lunch and we were only allowed to go in this little courtyard. But we got out and we said, we're going out. And we ran out this back exit and we started throwing the Frisbee around. And they had given us our music back. So we turned the music on. We're throwing the Frisbee around. And this crowd started gathering. And then the police came and everybody ran. And they, they, you know, they yelled at us and said, don't you ever do that again and all that kind of stuff. 
So then the tournament went on, and, and <clears throat> we played Denmark. And this is the first time I let the team down. I lost two. Mm. And now we went back to the second division. Ugh. That's four years we have to wait now, at least. If we don't win the second division next time, we're in trouble. So that was really a killer. So I never drank alcohol in my life, ever. Never have, never, not, not one day since. So we started drinking alcohol that night because the tournament was over. And, uh, and we were, I guess, pretty drunk. So later that night, uh, you know, we decided we were going to get them back. We're going to get these people back for what they did to us. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> at, uh, <laughs> we got them back. And I'll tell you, we did get them back. And, uh, well, actually, I don't know if I should say that. But, uh, <laughs> but you, know, you know, we did something that there's no proof that we did it. But, uh, you, know, I, you know, if we, you know, you know, this poor kid from Ohio, what he did. It was nothing what we did. Mm. <laughs> and people say, you realize you, you would have been in hard labor forever and you would have been killed yeah. for sure. Uh, there were no security cameras at the time and we yeah. were lucky. And, you know, it, I, it was absolutely a juvenile thing to do. But, you know, it was the kind of thing that was certainly alcohol fueled. <laughs> I've, never, I've never touched it since and never wanted to. I never even wanted to do it then. But it was sort of a we're all sitting around a table with the Germans and the Swedes and all that. And they were giving shots around and I, I gave it a try. And then I realized that, you know, if you drink alcohol, you might be doing some really stupid stuff. <laughs> but I'll tell you, it felt good. It felt good. And, I, and even to this day, I, I don't regret it. I don't really regret it. <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you what we did, that's for sure, because if you did, you would, your mouth would fly open and you would say, what? <laughs> but if you read my book, it sort of explained in there at some level. Okay, cool. That's a good. That's a good promo for your book. Then, <laughs> um, I'm curious. Uh, one of the one of the things I don't even remember when I saw this, but um, the uh, the show Thirty Rock. There's a comedian on there, Judah Friedlander, who wears hats with with things on them, and one of the hats that he wore on one of the episodes said uh, C. Miller Grip. I'm not sure if you were aware of that. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. That was, yeah, he's a good friend. Well, not a good friend, but you know, when he had that, we were like, wow, that's cool. Yeah, but that, that, uh, I remember that that episode, it was such a weird episode, too. He was like going <laughs> to a gay bar and he was doing things, and it was like, that's not the time to be wearing my hat. <laughs> and he always wore these hats that you know, you, you didn't really know what they meant, but then if you looked yeah. them up, you'd find out it was like an unusual thing. And he's a great, he loves table tennis, he calls himself the world champion. What? Uh, he does. He is the, he's the world champion, and he wears world champion hats, and <clears throat> he certainly isn't, but he, he helps the sport. Yeah, that's awesome. <clears throat> Let's talk about the Olympics. Did you ever play the Olympics? Never played the Olympics. Okay. Uh, the first one was in 1988. I was 34 years old. I was in pretty good shape, but uh, only one player got to go. Mm. I lost to Sean O'Neill, who was 20 at the time, so he was a young gun. Uh, I was leading two games to one, down 17-18, my serve. So I was really close to going. And uh, I gave him two side topspins. He cut them heavy. And I looped them hard, and they both hit the top of the net went long. Mm -hmm. So I lost that game, and then he got momentum and got me in the fifth. But uh, that, was, that was a really disappointing thing. In 1992, I won the Olympic trials. And then in the Continental trials, they were in Colorado Springs, and the altitude really affected me. And I, mm -hmm. I kind of – I just didn't play well. It was a combination of the altitude and then also since I won the trials, the expectations – uh, it would have been better off coming in third 
or fourth because there were six players that made it. But I beat everyone in the U.S. trials. But then in the finals, I only won one. one I beat Jimmy Butler, who won the trials. But I lost to a couple of the other lower guys. And mm. uh, it was just, you know, it, I was nervous, basically, in that one. So then after that, uh, I basically went into coaching, and I never took the Olympics serious after that. Mm. I never really tried again with a – I tried a couple times, but it was mostly just to be there. Yeah. So how did you how did you become the um, the U.S. team coach when you went um, to Sydney? Uh, in 1999, they offered me the job. Uh, I was coaching at South Bend, and uh, they, it was sort of a part-time job, so it was maybe three months a year, okay. probably do about 70 days per year. Uh, and I thought, well, this is perfect because in South Bend, table tennis, we're only open four days a week, so it's somewhat part-time. I can get away. And I, you know, I, I told them that if I have other jobs, that I, I have to leave and do things. So that was part of the thing, no problem. So I held that for till 2009. Mm. And, uh, you know, we just didn't have money. And instead of 70 days, I was down to like 30 and whatever. And, I, and we, we had no chance to win. And, you know, people say, Coach, how's the team? How are we doing? And, you know, I'd have to fake and say, yeah, we're ready and all that. But we weren't. And mm. we didn't get any financing. The Olympic Committee had cut off our money. and And we also had a lot of these foreign players who became U.S. citizens who were on the team who just didn't have, just didn't have the patriotism that, that I wanted, that, that we should have. You know, they, mm. To me, they were there to play table tennis. They weren't there to represent the United States. And uh, that was totally clear because, uh, you know, one championship, uh, we go to in Germany and Lupulescu comes in and he's overweight and he's got a bad leg and he says, Coach, I'm not even going to play. And I'm like, you know, you're not even going to play? And then why are you on the team? And then we had other players that just didn't give the effort. Mm. And I was like, this is all wrong, all wrong. So I, I, I resigned uh, in 2009, and it was probably the best thing I did because mm. it wasn't going better, you know. And uh, one, one tournament I always remember was the Pan Ams in 2007, and I had Honshal and Mark Kaczynski on the team and Eric Owens. And man, we were one tough American team. We really were. It was so great to come in and you know say we're taking these guys out. Not only we're we taking them out, we're taking them out for America, mm-hmm. you know. And that was all, that was missing. And when you have that missing, uh, then it it becomes meaningless, kind of to me. Yeah, we talked about this in the last podcast. The uh, USATT board kind of did a flip, um, and they're all being replaced now. Um, I'm I'm interested to see. Uh, what what you think uh, USATT should do differently to kind of uh, improve the sport in America? Everything. <laughs> okay. Everything. They, you know, for some reason, I don't know. You know, I have a love-hate with relationship with this sport. Absolutely, I love it, but I certainly hate the directions that they always go. You know, for sure, the number one thing is you, you need to increase prize money in this, term, in this, this uh, sport. If you don't, you're going to be small forever. Yeah. And table tennis is hot. Uh, this should be the number one goal and maybe the only goal, really. I mean, because if you can do that, everything else follows in place. Mm. I mean, if you have national championships where the winner's getting $50,000, then kids are going to play everywhere. They're going to want to win that $50,000. And then whoever wins that $50,000 is going to train, and your team's going to be in the top 15 in the world. Mm. So they do it pretty much the wrong way. They spend all this money sending kids around the world. And then they all go to college. Just absolute mm-hmm. waste. It just flush it down the toilet. Yeah. Uh, so you know they really need to change their perspective and their goals. I was president, and you know, you, you, I you know we had a stipend for the national team players. They got five thousand dollars because hey, they got to spend three or four weeks in training. 
you know, you got to give them some money so that they, they, they can exist. Mm -hmm. And we had all-star series with prize money. We had prize money. Prize money was higher then than now. Yeah. And uh, you, this, to me, is the main goal. Uh, other than that, you know, I, you don't really need any other goal. I mean, obviously, you have to, you know, cross, dot the I and cross the T on certain things. But if that's your goal, you're probably going to keep moving forward. And, sure. you know, hey, you find a Cisco decides they want to give you $250,000 to start sponsoring. Yeah. Well, you put 200000 in and prize money and help your tournament directors and give them some money so that their $8,000 tournament now becomes twenty-five, mm. And then and now these players can go and make a couple grand. Uh, you know, it's not a lot of money, but you can't go to a tournament and have it cost you $900. Yeah. And, uh, and so players don't go anymore. So that that's really, you know, that just cuts it simple and dry. If they did that, they would be successful at it. Mm. And if they're successful at it, the sport will grow and it will get respect. You know, someone yeah. said, Canuck Jaw just won $50,000 in Vegas. People say, wow, that's pretty good. <laughs> you know, and what's Canuck Jaw going to do with that money? He's going to use it to train. He's yeah. going to use it to get better. And every guy behind him is going to want to become Canuck Jaw. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, I, back in the 70s, we used to have $5,000 for the winner of the Nationals with bonuses from your company. Yeah. And last year, it was $3,000 35 years later. <laughs> so, obviously, it's not a priority. And people, this is what these people, these people will say to me. They'll say, well, Dan, you know you can't make a lot of money in table tennis. So, you know, and I would say, no, stop, stop right there. I say, I know there's not a lot of money in table tennis, but let's at least get it to the point where it should be. Or where yeah. it could be, you know, but let's not just slough it off and say that we're not going to give money and we're just going to play for trophies and medals. Yeah. I don't want trophies and medals. People don't really want trophies and medals at the higher levels. You know, you can't exist. So you can't support they, yourself on a trophy. You can't. And, and, and after you've won, you know, 20 trophies, they, they lose a little meaning. <laughs> but, you know, that, that's the goal. And I'll tell you, if that became the goal, and I'll tell you, you know, I was talking to Joey here and, and you know, Maybe I should be the CEO of table tennis because I, I, I know how to run this. And I never thought I would want to do that. But my daughter lives in Colorado, and, uh, and, and I've got incredible experience as a president. And I've been a coach, and I've been a player, and I, I, I know what the focus would be. And that would be my focus completely. Yeah. Every Tuesday, I would send 200 letters out to every company. I would call mm -hmm. everyone. Mm -hmm. I would try to find that CEO who loves ping pong. I would there's try to find – There's the a industry. lot of them. We've got wealthy guys. I mean, but if, if this became your focus and you really worked on it and, like, you spent 30 hours a week, this is the way you go. Yeah. Uh, and, and if you did that, and the problem we do have, though, is the Olympic Committee, they don't want you to go that way. They mm. won't give you money for prize money. They won't give you anything. And they, they have all these rules and, and stuff that, that hold you back. When I was president, for sure, my main problem was the Olympic Committee of all. And, <laughs> and I'll give you an example. I'm the president. There's 41 sports. About eight of them are not even Olympic sports. Mm. Okay? Now think about this. There's 41 sports, and they support all these sports. Give me a guess what you think table tennis was of the 41. Joe, where do you think we stood from 1 to 41? It's got to be 41. <laughs> we were actually 41. Ugh. They gave more money to bowling which is not a, sp a sport. They gave more money to uh, all these sports uh, that were trying to become sports. Yeah. And, and I was all over their case because I figured the squeaky wheel is better than being quiet. Yeah. And they didn't like me at all. You know? But <laughs> I was like, how in the world 
can we be 41st? And they would say, well, we realize that you, know, you guys aren't that competitive at the world level and you probably can't medal. So I was like, well, you know, how can we get better if you, you're not going to support us? Yeah. You know, so that was, you know, and that's been the crux ever since. And, and even now the whole board was removed by the Olympic Committee yeah. because of, you know, some bylaws and other things. I don't know the whole thing about it. But, uh, you know, so in some ways the Olympic Committee hasn't really helped us. Mm. And, uh, but like I said, if the if they, USA Table Tennis put prize money as the priority, and they went after these wealthy guys that we have, like Cy Wasserman and others, and all these people that and that are winning the sport. Yeah, uh, they love it. They'll help out. Yeah. And then you know, and table tennis is, it's sellable now. Yeah. I mean, you they had it on the Super Bowl commercial what a couple of years ago. Remember uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger? He was playing table tennis on the Super Bowl commercial, mm-hmm. and uh, it was like the hottest thing. And it, it's you even see it in commercials now, and you see that the athletes use it. So if you can't sell that, then you're not doing your job. Yeah. And, and what happens is they get so caught up in administrative, mm. administrative junk. You know, I'm a real good administrator. Well, that ain't gonna get us anywhere. <laughs> you know, you got to be a mover, a shaker, and you got to know what you're doing, and you better have, you know, you better make good decisions that have, that are experience based. So, uh, you know, my wife, I. My wife said, would, would you want to take that job? I said, no, I, I don't want to deal with the Olympic Committee you know, and all that. <laughs> but now my daughter lives in Colorado, and my grandkids are there, and we might move there. And yeah. I'm thinking, wow, I, I never really even had you know, this kind of a job. It might be cool. So, yeah. so I'm throwing it out there, folks. <laughs> throwing it out there. If, uh, if the new CEO isn't getting it done, uh, I think I'm I – didn't, I didn't sign up last you – know, when they, they interviewed last year. I didn't even think about it, but then someone said, "Well, why wouldn't you want to do it?" And I thought, "Why wouldn't I now?" Yeah. So, so you did a good and, job with it for sure. And I even told Joey this morning we were talking. We were pretty excited about the trials and all that. And I was thinking, man, you know that could be you know the you know the final leg of my sporting world in table tennis. I can yeah. get in there and really make a difference. I mean, yeah. a huge difference. And I'll tell you, if I was CEO. There'd be fifty thousand dollars in our tournaments, and I'd be helping tournament directors. I'd be giving them money, and I would also, you know, rank the tournaments. If they do well, we give them more money, mm. you know. And and we have that kind of money because there's no better way to spend money than to have athletes earn it. Yeah. You know, when you say, Joe, you're going to go to Sweden and Japan, and we're going to spend ten thousand dollars on you, that's a waste in a lot of ways. Mm. It's better to have Joe earn the ten thousand yeah. dollars, and then you know that money was earned. It wasn't given. Yeah. And, uh, and spend it, it a lot more wisely if you earn something rather than are given it. For sure. And then you also had to work for it. Yeah. You know, no one gave it to you. And, and you earned it. And then that, if you did that. Then I'd go to Japan and Sweden on my own and get better to make sure I earn it the next time. Yeah. And, and then I think the sport could really grow. Hmm. I really do because it has such great qualities. I mean, it's a family sport. You can play it at home. It's not that costly. Uh, it's so fast. It's complex. Uh, you can learn on the internet. I, and, you know, it's got so many good things going. But you know, the real problem is, you know, America. The perception is ping pong. Yeah. And to change perceptions is difficult. Yeah. You know, when you 90% of Americans think ping pong is a game, and why would you be serious with something that's a game? Uh, but that prize money would start to change that perception. Yeah, sure. for sure. Not only, maybe not outside the sport initially, but inside the sport. It would change immediately, and then it would start to filter out. For sure. And then who knows where it would go? Maybe we would end up being 
the hot thing because it, you know, this is the one sport that you can actually train at home for tournaments and, and, mm -hmm. and Olympics and, you know, your goals can be, you know, whatever, where you don't have to spend tons of money and you can play with your parents and your, your mm -hmm. brothers and your friends, you know, you don't even have to go anywhere. So a lot of people play it at work even. And yeah. So I, I, you know, obviously I'm enthusiastic about the sport, but I still got that love slash hate. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the hate, you know, I shouldn't say hate, but let's say, you know, something like that. But Loathe. You know, just, just that, you know, uh, here we are 40 years later and it's exactly the same from 40 years ago. And yeah. not only that, it's kind of a step backwards in many ways. So how does that happen? Yeah. You know? Do you think the success of Connect John, Lily Zhang will uh help you think no i don't think so i mean mm. it does help obviously everyone's proud of them and they're doing yeah. fantastic i mean i think they're just uh give them kudos all the way i yeah. i think canuck and lily have really you know given us a lot of pride uh but you know not many people really care mm. you know not unless they're going to win the worlds but even then i don't think they'll really care because uh if it doesn't come down to the money yeah. And, and and people don't get a chance to see that and, and have that feeling, uh, you know, people are never going to be all that interested in people winning trophies. Yeah. You know, and that, you know, that's not going to be it. And we have a real problem in table tennis is a scoring system. You know, you know, when you come into a tournament, you can see 30, 40 tables going, but no one's keeping score. Mm. So you can't really watch anything. So, uh, you know, if you went to a basket, if you went to see some guys playing basketball and they weren't keeping score, you'd watch for five minutes. Mm. The same thing happens in table tennis. People come in and go, this is really cool. But when you don't see scoring, then you can't really follow it. But if you have 30 tables that are all scoring, you'll say, hey, over there is a great match and there's a big crowd. And over there is another close match. Joey's playing and it's in the final game and it's close. And there's 200 people watching. So you get this excitement within the hall. But when you don't have the scoring, the excitement just goes away. Yeah. I'm actually working on a digital scoring system for all tables. Mm. And I have a, a, this fellow in Columbus, Indiana, who, who's going to have a prototype in about a month. Cool. So I think that's really exciting for the sport where you know, every table will have a scoring system where everyone can see it and you can see it also. Nice. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, any last words for... Uh, well, you know, the, the Olympic trial is coming up. Uh, you know, it's, it's three weeks away, so that's super cool. exciting. Uh, it's going to be in California. Uh, you know, I've had some great training. It's been real nice here in Salt Lake with Joey. We did a good clinic. Did a good clinic in El Paso. I haven't done those lately. But uh, hopefully if you're out there, you're playing table tennis, and uh, it's going to keep growing, and we're going to get some prize money in the sport. You're going to be proud of it, and uh, it's going to change. Uh, we're going to turn this thing around. Do you have any social media, uh, any any way for people to keep track of what's going on? I never did before, but ever since the CBS thing, my sister says, you got to get a Facebook, man. you yeah. got to get on there. And I, I got on Facebook, and I had like 1,100 friends in a week. Okay, cool. So it's been really cool, and I, I all of a sudden, it's opened up a whole new world to me. I'm meeting all my old school friends and yeah. things like that. So, yeah, I'm on Facebook. If you want to you know, contact me, please do. And, okay. Uh, it's a uh, it's a whole new world because I'm sort of old school when it comes to that kind of thing, <laughs> but uh, like I said, I, I I'm actually really enjoying. It. I can't wait to go back and see who's friended me and other things and yeah. and all the different messages I'm getting from people that I haven't even spoken to for. 30, 40 years. I've got guys from high school that said, wow. hey, Danny, I can't believe you're still in the arena. I mean, good luck in the trials, you know? And I'm like, wow, I haven't talked to that kid since 10th grade. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
so it's like these people were all coming to me because well cbs opened up those doors that, that was really that That's was awesome. really something it's gonna be cool to see your netflix special too that's gonna be awesome yeah yeah i mean that that, that you know everybody says that, but that netflix is gonna be huge it's an eight it's an eight-part story about athletes with unique stories and uh and obviously i guess i have a unique story and they're gonna follow me at the trials and yeah. And it is. They also uh, talk a lot about you know tough losses for athletes. So they're they're getting some videos of some of my tougher losses, mm. and uh, hopefully I don't have one of those in three weeks from now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that sport, you know, one thing about sport, it is tough. You know, you have these highs, and boy, you sure have the lows. And the highs are awesome, but the lows are tough too. You know, and that that's the way life is. Yeah. Well, good luck. And uh, are the are the Trials going to be live streamed anywhere? Do you know? Do you have any Likely, it'll sh- it should be on the USA Table Tennis website, okay. I would think. But cool. yeah, I'm sure it will be. Yeah, It'll especially be you know the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the qualifiers, even probably the qualifiers. But there'll be a lot of players in that. Uh, and Joey and I may have to go through that qualifier, but we both realize if we're not getting through the qualifier, we're not getting to the team. So mm-hmm. that might be a good warm up. But uh, I have a tournament this week at Samson's, and I'm hoping to gain some points, cool. and maybe I can get up and get out of that qualifier but it's unlikely all right well thanks for joining us um yeah thanks coach hey it's been great to be here and uh thanks for inviting me to the podcast table tennis talk is a monthly podcast by joey cochran and ryan lewis edited by ryan lewis music on the podcast comes from chill hop records find the podcast on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you find your podcasts Send us questions at tabletennistalk.com or on Twitter at tttalkpodcast.